namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami This is the uh, new moon night, last week of March and the last week of our winter retreat time together. Today was what uh, I could easily refer to as a perfect English spring day. Beautiful, warm sunshine, flowers everywhere. This afternoon, sitting in the temple, perfectly quiet, still, peaceful. Oh, when the mind is um, in tune with reality, in tune with Dhamma, in tune with its own nature, then uh, there's a, a great quality of peacefulness. So a perfect spring day, quiet, still, sitting amongst uh, other good companions in the spiritual life, in the temple. Peaceful, harmonious. What could be better than that? <laughs> what could be more delightful? Is the the mind uh, aware of uh, of the Dhamma, peaceful, calm, not being anything? When the the mind is really awake to the true nature of things, it realizes it's not a person. The mind is not a person. It's not a thing. It's not anybody. There's wakefulness, clarity, energy, peacefulness, freedom. So in our clearest moments, that's uh, very obvious. <laughs> and then our clearest moments pass. And uh, so when I say the perfect spring day, the thought might have crossed your mind, ha! Perfect spring day. You should have you should have been listening to my mind. <laughs> if only you knew, Ajahn, what was going through my mind on this perfect spring day. Ha <laughs> So cold. Because, uh, as we're all aware, uh, even though the conditions can be totally ideal, living amongst uh, good friends, uh, the situation benign body comfortable, no uh, <clears throat> particular difficulties, even with every positive condition imaginable, still the mind can uh, 
create all kinds of trouble, get up to all kinds of mischief. In its clearest moments, in, in the, 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 uh, the times of greatest clarity, the, the greatest attunement, then it, it's obvious. It's just the mind awake to the way things are here and now. That's all. Nothing to add, nothing to get rid of, nothing to be, nothing to not be. Totally simple. And then a thought arises, oh, what am I going to do next week? How are we going to fix that gap in the hedge? <laughs> did we did we order that um, did we order that parasol for the garden yet? <laughs> what are we going to do about Venerable Gina Wara's robe that needs dyeing? Who's the best dyer now? Who? Ajahn Congrid, he's a really good dyer. Yeah, but he's away in New Zealand. When's he going to get back? Off it goes. The the world gets created. Now, if uh, if your biggest problem is who's going to help dye Venerable Jinawaro's robe, then your your troubles are not very great in the world. I would suggest. <laughs> but of course, our, our troubles get more extensive and complicated and more personal than that. Our health, our relationships, our place in the family, our place in society. Should I come? Should I go? More of this, less of that. Should I be here? Should I go there? Uh, how can I help this person? What should we do about about that? The mind picks up emotionally charged and, and personal issues and then the, the world gets created. We uh, We conjure our own worlds into being. We take our own personal story our nationality, our age, our state of health, our, our life history. And then we into that perfect clarity of the present moment, where we are not, the mind is not being anything or being anybody. Suddenly, whoomph, you know, I arrive. <laughs> and not just and not just the me, but the you know the whole crowd, the whole zoo of of uh, creatures that that come along with our, our mind, all of the um, memories, ideas, hopes, fears, opinions, loves, hates, conflicts, jealousies, uh, aspirations, hopes, uh, everything, the whole menagerie, the whole zoo, the whole collection of of characters the mind conjures into being. So on a day like today, and we've been in retreat for three months, so uh, as a, a, a basis of calm and tranquility, uh, uh, stability in the community, the same group of people pretty much has been together for the last three months as a, as a foundation of uh, familiarity, of, of simplicity, continuity. Uh, but it's really interesting, striking how even when things are very simple, very stable, and very peaceful, what the mind can create, what, what it can bring into that, the temple of our own experience, the, uh, the range of different things the mind can be preoccupied with. So uh, 
I, I always reassure people I can't read their minds, but the, the uh, I just through imagine just through my imagining and and just through statistics, <laughs> I could uh, would would guess that uh, during today, uh, it's beautiful, uh, bright, peaceful, clear weather, but uh, the uh, minds of uh, people gathered together here in this community uh, here in the in the temple here at Amravati could have been filled with all kinds of stuff, just endless uh, battles with internal demons, with worrying about the, the future, stressing about the past, creating conflicts with, uh, with other people that we, we share our lives with, people that we really can't stand, people that we really admire, people that... Uh, <coughs> We find it impossible to understand how easily the the mind get, gets filled up. It, it creates its own world and then gets lost in it. Now the the Buddha's teaching uh, one of the the things that's very beautiful and powerful about the the Buddha's teaching is that it's so wide ranging. It's not just a, a Either you're totally enlightened, or you're completely confused, and all of the the um, the things of the world, uh, our thoughts and feelings and perceptions or actions are just kind of inferior and uh, uh, obstructive. But rather, uh, if you if you look at the Buddha's teachings, if you read the suttas and you uh, listen to the the teachings uh, that have come down through the ages. What you find is that the vast majority of the Buddha's teachings are about um, choosing skillfully what to put the mind onto. So if uh, the mind is going to create a world, and uh, the Buddha was very practical. He realized, well, these, these minds do like to create worlds. <laughs> they do like to, to create ideas and thoughts and memories, and they like to plan and to imagine. So uh, because minds do this, our minds uh, like to engage, like to get involved, get caught up in, in things, then uh, the, the vast majority of the Buddha's teaching, uh, as far as I can tell anyway, is to do with creating skillful things for the mind to engage with, and uh, uh, particularly skillful in terms of creating conditions, creating uh, emotions, ideas, attitudes that help the mind to awaken and to see beyond uh, those, those very conditions. So it, uh, uh, it's a, a collection of teachings that help us to develop skillful attitudes that eventually help us to let go of, of everything to let go of, of even the skillful, even to let go of, of any kind of conditioned and, and fabricated formation of mind and the world at all. So that, uh, and this is part of the Buddha's brilliance and uh, amazing skill is that he offers this whole collection of conditions to help the mind eventually to see beyond you know, all, all conditions, to see beyond, yeah. All uh, perceptions and thoughts, and all of the uh, conditioned world, to awaken to the unconditioned. 
This is an amazing skill. So as the spring energy gets uh, fully into uh, into mode, uh, all the uh, flowers are bursting out around us. The magnolia bush in the lawn in front of my kuti is uh, busting out all over. Beautiful uh, pink flowers, daffodils everywhere. All the, uh, the spring flowers are bursting up, so that the uh, also the spring energies are bursting in people's minds. People are getting more active and involved and engaged. So it's natural for the mind to to want to to involve itself with things, to get uh, active with things. Also, less than a week to go of our winter retreat time, and uh, there's uh, things to plan. Uh, who's going to have what role in the community? People who are arriving. For Sangha meetings, uh, things to prepare for the uh, Lumpur Sumato's visit in May and all of the other uh, visiting uh, Ajans from everywhere around the world. So there's many, many things for the mind to get engaged with or involved with. And we can easily fill the mind with worry, with busyness, with uh, irritation. Uh, we can dwell upon all the things that are uh, say, causing us to feel pressure, uh, all the things that are uh, not the way we would like them. Uh, we can uh, dwell upon uh, what's annoying about other people that we, we live with, uh, <laughs> all kinds of uh, negative uh, or obstructive, agitating things. But uh, the uh, encouragement of the Buddha is uh, to... To take that uh, sort of outgoing energy, the, the the interest of the mind, the, the mind's urge to engage and to do and to uh, <clears throat> to involve itself, and to to put it onto skillful objects, to to steer it in uh, in different uh, into pathways that lead down different tracks, that don't lead down the pathways of agitation and conflict and contention, but lead to the qualities of, of peacefulness, of clarity, lead to, to uh, contentment, lead to uh, freedom and, and peacefulness. The one thing that uh, uh, in, these, in terms of these kind of skillful focuses for the mind, if the mind is looking for something to dwell on and involve itself in, one of the uh, the most um, helpful directions to steer the mind is in the direction of gratitude. To uh, to realize that uh, if it wasn't for the Buddha, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have these marvelous teachings. We wouldn't have this this tradition of uh, <coughs> of uh, living in such a skillful way, taking uh, uh, living on the the precepts, the uh, practice of taking on the, the precepts, living in a way that is harmless, you know, that is honest, that is uh, modest, that is uh, as simple as can be. Just that first precept. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. As Lumpur Sumedha would often say, if humanity just kept that one precept, and just in relationship to other humans... <laughs> Not even not killing animals, but just to refrain from killing other humans. 
just that one precept, the life on earth will be completely transformed. So we can take it for granted, you know, Amravati exists, you know, the precepts exist, the robes exist, the, the, the people coming to offer alms food yeah, exist, that that's just, that's just what happens, it's the way things are. But it's, it's not just the way things are, it's, it's this way, because two and a half thousand years ago, uh, a man in India woke up, the, the Buddha awakened, this extraordinary being, uh, through an inconceivable amount of effort, time, and application, woke up to the uh, to the reality of things, and uh, was enabled to, to bring his life totally into accord with with reality, with Dhamma, and we're the recipients of that one person's extraordinary effort. Two and a half thousand years later, 25 centuries later, here we are in Hertfordshire, sitting in this building, because the Buddha awakened. That's amazing. 25 centuries ago. Do you, do you realize what was happening here in, in Hertfordshire, what is that, 2,500 years ago? That was the Iron Age. That was way before the Romans even arrived. This is like the... Uh, it was after the Stone Age, <laughs> but not much. Life was pretty, as they say, nasty, brutish, and short uh, in this part of the world uh, two and a half thousand years ago. And, uh, and so uh, uh, <clears throat> it's incredible that uh, we are the recipients of the effects of that person's life in India who woke up under the Bodhi tree beside the river Niranjara and spent the next uh, 45 years traveling around the Ganges Valley and, uh, <coughs> in uh, Nepal and uh, northeast India teaching, being available and uh, establishing the, the Sangha, establishing the tradition, establishing these very robes that we are wearing. <laughs> These traditions, these words that, that we recite, Buddhang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami, those same words have been recited by countless millions of people for 25 centuries. And they still carry the power that they today that they did then. And they can still act as a, a focal point and uh, give direction to our lives. So, it's very easy just to sort of forget. You know, you come into the temple, you bow three times, your mind is, or is, you know, it's like 3% on what you're doing. <laughs> Maybe you, you realize you're bow, bowing by the time you get to the third bow, and you oh, right, 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 yeah, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, yeah, okay, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind. Just this is how we are as human beings. And it's easy to forget but it's an amazing thing that uh, the, the Buddha lived and taught. And over all these centuries, um, his teaching was preserved by all the people. You know, for 400 years, it wasn't even written down, just passed on by rote learning from the elders to the juniors. And then the Emperor Asoka establishing the, the teaching uh, all over India and then spreading, uh, sending out missionaries around the world. And uh, over all this time, 
his teachings have come down to us. And then in the modern era, through the uh, the efforts of uh, people like uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho, here we are, sitting uh, uh, here in the temple at Amravati on the, the new moon day, you know, 2,500 years later, and we're able to reflect upon the, the teachings, we're able to uh, live on alms food. Yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. Like the, not long ago, I was invited to go and give a talk to a, a group of Buddhist students, and actually the Muslims as well, <laughs> at Eton College. <laughs> the Imam was away, so I had the I had the uh, no, it was the, sorry, not, it was it was the Jewish group. The the uh, the rabbi was away, so and, uh, I got the the Buddhists and the and the Jewish group as well. And uh, to be able to, to, to say to a, a hall full of, of schoolboys that uh, I haven't used money since 1978. <gasps> what? <laughs> to say, yeah, I, I live without money. I haven't. I don't. I don't have any bank. I don't have any bank account. I don't have any money. I don't have any debts. <laughs> I live without money. What an amazing thing! What an incredible thing in this in this day and age for. For women and men to be able to to live uh, without money, just to rely on the kindness of of uh, friends, kindness of strangers, everything that we that we that we wear, the the buildings that we we're sheltered in, these are all donated. They're offered. This, uh, as I often point out, I've been uh, in the monastery since 1978. So they they say all the cells of your body are replaced every seven years. So five times over, my body has been replaced by arms food. Seven fives are 35, so seven and a half. <laughs> so this is a donated body. This has come out of my arms bowl and a few water taps. You know. <laughs> so that's an amazing thing. This is a, this, this, I can't even say this is my body. Well, it's not really. It's been donated by a lot of very, <laughs> a lot of very kind people. So we might feel very possessive or take it very personally, but this, this is not just a donated building, a donated property. This, these bodies are donated. Anyone who's been in robes for more than seven years, that's not your body. <laughs> that's a donated, a donated item. So when we, we uh, uh, change our perception and uh, develop this sense of gratitude, gratitude to the Buddha, Gratitude to Lumpur Man, Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumato, these great beings who just, through incredible resolve and energy and patience, wisdom, just chose to say, I'm going to do one thing with my life. I'm going to wake up. <laughs> Whatever it takes, I'll do it. That's the one thing worth doing, and I'm going to, I'm going to put everything I've got into doing it. And the very fact that these people made this effort, the Buman, back in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, and then and then Cha, meeting him in the in the fifties, uh, then Lumpur Sumato encountering Cha in the sixties, and then 
bringing the teaching here to to the West, and so we're all the the recipients of the the efforts of those, and also all of the others who have uh, gathered around them and have also given teachings and have carried out the way of practice. But it's it's very easy in the flow of our days just to get wrapped up with our own particular struggles, my uh, uh, problems with restlessness and lust and laziness and jealousy and anxiety, my, my, the mind that's fretting and worrying and uh, hanging on to the past or the future or whatever it might be, you know, <laughs> whatever's your favorite flavor, you know, which one of the, the she's your favorite item in the chocolate box. <laughs> if you like to dwell on lust or on aversion or dwelling on the past or the future or just nameless doubt, whatever's your, your favorite uh, your favorite flavor. It's easy to forget. It's easy to, to uh, say, not notice or to, to take for granted that, that we've come from somewhere. This doesn't just happen on its own. Amravati didn't just pop out of nowhere. It was, it was from the, the, the interest, the intention, the resolve of, of Lumpur Sumato. Uh, founded on his uh, his life as a monk, as trained by Lumpur Cha, who was inspired by Lumpur Man, who, and so on and so forth, way back from, from ages past. So it's not an accident. It's not. It's not a, just a chance. So that if we want to put our mind onto something, rather than worrying about what's wrong with the 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 Anagarika in the next room and. <laughs> Why they're so irritating, and why can't they be different? Or you know, uh, worrying about what uh, what jobs you're going to have next week, or um, whether you'll ever be forgiven for that horrible thing you did in the past. There's a ten thousand different things that the mind can worry about and fret over and create conflicts about. But we we don't have to let the mind go in those directions. We can steer it towards gratitude. Just to reflect. But, uh, the very fact that we have uh, food to eat, a place to to be a shelter, we have clothing to put on our bodies, is because of the efforts of, of many, many great beings. And uh, so just steering the mind towards that quality of gratitude and uh, consciously doing that, to consciously appreciate the, the blessings that that we've received that that we are supported by what a wonderful thing how amazing and you know, when we do that when you make the effort to cultivate gratitude you notice that uh, it has a, a a brightening quality it energizes the mind it brightens the mind there's a, a glow that comes to the heart when you dwell upon worry uh, uh, afraid of what you might have done wrong or afraid of what people think of you or are you worried about uh, how things are going to be uh, next next week, next month, next year, next year uh, <clears throat> then it's different. It does not brighten the mind. It darkens the mind. There's a kind of cramping, tensing, stressing quality, at least in, in my mind. When you dwell upon conflict, and the mind gets annoyed with somebody and uh, carries them around when you bear a grudge, 
it's it's tight, isn't it? It's, there's a stressed, uh, tense, tight quality. Oh, it's him again. Oh, well, not her. Oh, good grief. It tightens. It's it, there's a burden, a, a kind of stressing, a, a painfulness. And the the Buddha's uh, teachings uh, encourage us to uh, to to notice that, to notice the unwholesome and the wholesome, and to simply choose the train the mind to choose the wholesome. When we dwell upon gratitude. Bring that to mind. Look at the effects of that. If your mind is prone towards being cynical, complaining, oh, it's bloody gratitude. This isn't dumber. This is just sentimentality. I'm not interested in, in this kind of sentimental, sentimental, wishy-washy teachings. You know, I want you know liberation or nothing. That's all I'm interested in. Yeah, that there might be a certain kind of um, uh, you know, uh, noble idealism in that, but what's that? What's the the, the effect of that that mind that sort of dismisses uh, the qualities of uh, positivity, of uh, kindness, of appreciation? That uh, is the the mind that's sort of trying to be superior or. or Knowing better. Again, from my own experience, it's not a it's not a very pleasant mind state <laughs> to be to be dismissive or I'm not interested in that kind of mere uh, mere positivity. You know, who who needs that kind of kindergarten Buddhism? Pah. <laughs> yeah, merit is for for little children. Yeah, but speaking about the brightness of the heart, that's for that's for the kind of little kindergarten dhamma. But as the Buddha said, don't uh, don't belittle punya. Don't don't look down on on merit. You know, punya is another word for happiness, because these ways of cultivating a, a wholesome, skillful attitude, cultivating gratitude, uh, cultivating appreciation, they brighten the heart, and uh, and it's also one of the the most helpful things about uh, the Buddha's teaching. Also, that uh, you find Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumato would. Emphasize a lot is that you know, goodness isn't isn't uh, isn't good on its own. It's it's, a, it's not a, wholesomeness is not an absolute good. It's a, a means to an end. Sila generosity, keeping precepts, uh, be cultivating gratitude, so forth. Uh, we call those wholesome, we, or we call that the cultivation of goodness, but that, that goodness isn't an end in itself. But Because uh, <clears throat> if you attach to goodness, or you try to identify with goodness, then it leads to its opposite. It's always disappointing. But why uh, the wholesome is, is useful, is beneficial, is that it creates this quality of, of brightness, of clarity. It creates the conditions whereby the mind can more easily awaken. So goodness isn't good in its own right. It's not an absolute good. But what it does is it creates the ground, clears the ground for, where, for the mind to awaken, to know its own nature. The opposite, unwholesomeness, uh, creates more confusion and tension and you know, conflict and stress. So it makes it harder. 
to, to see reality. So badness is not bad on its own, just like goodness is not good on its own. Badness isn't in it is uh, unwholesomeness is not intrinsically bad. It's just if you if you cheat and lie and and complain and criticize and cultivate resentment and uh, negativity, it's very it's very hard to to see the truth of things. It's very hard to awaken. It's very hard to uh, to free the heart because it, it's. Uh, uh, the the ground is is far more uh, uneven. <laughs> it's uh, you created far more obstacles, far more uh, much more confusion, difficulty, and agitation within the heart. So the wholesome, cultivating uh, wholesomeness, cultivating gratitude, that uh, creates a brightness, a spaciousness, freedom from agitation, and that. Uh, that creates the ground, uh, the conditions where it's that much easier for the mind to awaken and to uh, to know the the truth of things directly. Uh, the uh, in the the Dhamma readings we were having uh, yesterday, we're talking about the Saraniya Dhammas, the uh, these uh, qualities that lead to. Um, Friendship to uh, to uh, concord that are supportive of, of the wholesome. So these are uh, are all uh, say positive, helpful things that we can steer the mind towards. That help to create this ground of clarity, this ground of of brightness, this ground of uh, of calmness, peacefulness. So the first three are all about cultivating loving kindness. So cultivating loving kindness in terms of uh, physical acts, mental acts, and then uh, verbal acts. So taking the trouble to be uh, to be kind and to uh, generate thoughts of loving-kindness to the people that you live with, the people that come to, to visit here, the people that you cross paths with. So cultivating loving-kindness in terms of your thoughts, your words, and your actions. Just uh, <clears throat> taking the trouble to, to embody the quality of benevolence, kindness. When you're speaking, to choose words that uh, unite the divided that don't just complain or criticize or, or just uh, uh, create um, uh, busyness, not just a kind of uh, wasteful chatter, but using words, choosing to, to speak in ways that are uh, encouraging, that uh, are, are supportive of spiritual qualities, that are not just sort of criticizing other people or... Um, Expressing your own uh, desires or aversions, opinions, but to, to thoughtfully use speech as uh, a way of uh, being a uh, wholesome, helpful presence to others. As the Buddha says, to cultivate speech that is a treasure, so that when people hear your words, they want to keep them, <laughs> like a precious, like a precious gift. So just to take taking those first three of the Saranya Dhammas to cultivate uh, 
thoughts, words, and deeds of loving kindness, just to set that as a, as, a, as an intention to uh, at the beginning of a day. Okay, how can I how can I uh, uh, spend my time uh, today cultivating an attitude of kindness, benevolence towards my uh, companions here, my friends and associates, fellow uh, monastics, practitioners here at Amravati. Let me look for ways that I can uh, act, speak and, and think in a, in a kindly manner, in a way that is, is uh, expressing qualities of uh, benevolence, acceptance, not dwelling in aversion. When uh, we talk in these ways, uh, sometimes, again, the, the kind of inner grouch, oh, loving-kindness, metta, I hate metta, <laughs> so annoying. It's like a kind of endless uh, Walt Disney film, this sort of smarmy sentiment. May all beings be happy. Yeah. How are you today? Yeah. I'm fine. I hope you're happy. Or you are, you know, how are you? And it, it can seem very superficial or smarmy or sentimental. But as, uh, <clears throat> as uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often emphasize, uh, metta is not about just the kind of uh, conjuring up a, a sentiment of niceness, but it's finding that place in the heart where everything belongs. It's like not dwelling in aversion, an, an open-hearted acceptance for the way people are. So even if when you you see somebody acting in a particular way that's that's annoying, to have loving kindness for them is where you can't make yourself like the way they do that. <laughs> you can't like the way that they laugh or walk or the way they slam that door. <laughs> we can't make ourselves like the unlikable, but we can uh, not dwell in a aversion towards it. We cannot uh, create more negativity we can have a quality cultivate a quality of of acceptance and so this is a very important aspect of, of cultivating loving kindness it's not just uh, again as Lumpur Sumato would say it's not just thinking pink it's sort of smearing a layer of sugar over everything uh, kind of, which is really nauseating <laughs> but rather it's Finding that place in in the heart where everything belongs. Like if you've got a like this this bug that's been going around. Well, lots of us have had lots of phlegm and snot and you know, and this coughing and sneezing and feverish. You can't like having an endless tickle in your throat or a nose full of snot. We we it's difficult. I find it difficult to like. <laughs> But you can you can make peace with it. You can say, well, whether I like whether I like it or not, here it is. The uh, the throat is full of phlegm. Whether I like it or not, here it is. It's fading out now, personally, but which, uh, I'm grateful for. But uh, so with loving kindness and cultivating these uh, saranya dhammas, it's not trying to make ourselves like the unlikable, but rather to find that place in the heart where well it belongs. Why should that person be? different just so that I'll be happy yeah if I think oh, the, if only she wasn't that way then I would be fine why does that person have to be different just for me it's ridiculous 
That's ridiculous. Why can't I just find my place in the heart, in the heart where that's the way they are? And um, uh, I don't have to create negativity towards that. There's a, a place where we can be kind and accepting to even things that we can't like, like a, a nose full of, of snot or a throat full of phlegm or a person with a, a personality that we find really unappealing or, or uh, distressing or confusing. It's like saying to your nose, you shouldn't be filled with snot. You're doing this to annoy me, aren't you? <laughs> No, it's not. It's just the body. It's the body doing its thing. A little, uh, uh, a little um, collective of bacteria have moved in and taken over, and they're doing their thing, producing their their, uh, their effects. That's what they do. This body is a is a metropolis. You're not you're not the owner of it. It uh, it's subject to all kinds of ailments, and so that uh, from time to time things move in, and, and we have. Different infections, different different physical experiences come from that. That's that's nature. That's life. If you say you shouldn't be this way, if life was fair, I'd never have a cold. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. If that's what you want, you're in the wrong universe. You have to be reborn in one of those Arupa Brahma realms where where you don't have a body. <laughs> so be sure you won't get a you won't have a runny nose. In the Arupa Brahma realms, I'm sure the Arupa Brahma gods have their own problems, but they've got their own specialized um, Arupa diseases. They probably have a whole catalog of mental ailments that we would never even think of down here in the in the Rupa in the Karma Loka with the, these bodies. So when we're cultivating uh, mental, verbal, and physical acts of kindness, uh, don't think of it as just sort of trying to be nice and, and like everything, but but rather to cultivate this uh, quality of open-hearted acceptance. And particularly, um, not just uh, loving-kindness towards others uh, in terms of our mental acts, but particularly uh, towards yourself. Towards, uh, towards ourselves because for most of the, you know, the majority of, of people uh, Buddhist practitioners in the West the, the, the person that it's most difficult to be kind towards is, is ourselves that we can be uh, forgiving and compassionate to, to uh, pretty much everybody else Ex, ex-husbands and ex-wives are usually more challenging <laughs> but uh, apart from exes the the majority for the majority of people, the, the hardest person to be kind towards is ourselves. To uh, to be accepting that this mind is this way, it has these habits, these particular loves and hates, these particular fears and insecurities, these particular addictions and obsessions, these particular fears and and desires. It's like this. And uh, where we can be accommodating and generous towards others, we can be really vicious and hurtful, critical uh, of ourselves. So in cultivating mental acts of loving-kindness, uh, the most important person <laughs> is, uh, is number one, is, is our, ourselves. 
So these are the, uh, the first three of the Saraniya Dhammas. Then to uh, the, the fourth one is um, being generous, you know, sharing what you have. So whether you're a monastic or a layperson, whether you live here or you're a visitor, you're here for a short time or a long time, just a day visitor. And to take this principle is to choose to be unselfish, to choose to share what you have. To take that simple principle of, uh, uh, of asking yourself the question, why am I more important than you? Why, why do I need this stuff more than you do? Can I, can I share what I have to be of benefit to others? Can I do that? What, what do others need around me? And so that uh, it's a, 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 just a basic encouragement to raise your vision from the uh, just uh, focusing on your own particular preferences and, and activities, what, what I want, what I need, my things, my stuff, to, to look around and say, what do, what do the others need? Has, has, everywhere, has everybody else got one of these? <laughs> How's everybody else doing? And that takes a bit of effort because instinctually, I'm more important than you. That's how we function as living beings, is that uh, uh, my, my pain is more significant than your pain. <laughs> my hunger is more, is more important than your hunger. Yeah, my desires outweigh yours. Yeah, what I want is more important than what you want. That's the, the activity of the instinctual mind. It's natural enough, but just because it's natural doesn't mean to say that it's useful or helpful. So to, uh, to cultivate that attitude of, of sharing is a, it's a simple gesture, but it makes a, a huge difference. I often tell the story of how many, many years ago when I was, a, I think I was an Anagarika in uh, Wat Pananachat back in 1978. And there was a, a, a French novel, another French Ginawaro, by coincidence. <laughs> You're getting a lot of airtime this evening, Venerable. <laughs> it was the other Ginawaro. <laughs> and uh, in those days, uh, the um, th life in Northeast Thailand was pretty, uh, pretty Spartan. The, the, the diet was a sort of vitamin and protein free diet, plenty of sticky rice. <laughs> But uh, yeah, there, there was a kind of uh, ground base of craving for anything that, that had any energy uh, giving properties to it. So that very quickly uh, people uh, developed an obsession with, with sweet things just to, to get a, a, a bit of a, uh, a charge of, uh, of juice in, in the system. And uh, every so often one of the... the, the uh, Monks and novices would get a, a, a so-called care package from family or friends back in their home country. And on this one occasion, this uh, French novice, uh, Venerable Ginawaro, got a, a package from his family in, in France. And uh, uh, he, so this, this parcel had arrived and he had this, this packet of, of boiled sweets. Now, before I was a, before I was a monk or a novice, uh, I was not particularly interested in boiled sweets. You know, candies, or sweeties were 
not particularly interesting, but after six weeks in northeast Thailand, <laughs> interest arose, knowledge arose, passion arose. And, uh, and so, yeah, this is serious currency. You had this whole packet, like a half a kilo of, of these sweets. Like. So that's, that's serious wealth. And, uh, and to, to my uh, amazement, he was sort of passing them around and because I kept passing the packet around. And then finally, uh, and we were the sort of most junior people in the community. There was about 20, 25 monks there at the time. We were amongst the most junior people, and so that the, this, this bag of sweets had done a, you know, several rounds, and then it came back to us, and uh, there was only like two or three left at the bottom of the packet, and so then he and he offered it to me, uh, and I said, "Don't you want to keep these for yourself?" And he, he and he said to me, "They are much more delicious if I share them." And that was, when he said that, they are much more delicious when I, if I share them. I thought, I've never thought that in my entire life. <laughs> That's a completely alien concept. So it was kind of shocking, but also very impressive. So I have a very fond memory of uh, Venerable Ginawaro to this, this day. Because uh, it was just a, a wonderful teaching, you know, uh, that... Uh, and it was true that uh, you know, even though he only had like one or two to, to, to have for himself, they were really delicious because uh, he'd shared them with, with everyone. And if you have if, all for me, <laughs> even though there might be a kind of sweetness, there's a bitterness because it's like what I've got. You know, it's mine, mine, mine. There's a bitterness in that, that mine feeling that uh, outweighs the sugar. So sharing what we, what we have, uh, as the Buddha says, even to the contents of your own bowl, like if you see that the, the monk next to you didn't get a, a, a particular kind of goodie, you say, oh, here, you didn't get one of these. Please share mine. And uh, <clears throat> I remember... Um, when many years ago here at Amravati, and I, uh, in the in the early days, I was a very sort of uh, I liked to be a super ascetic monk, and was like really into not having anything nice for myself, and that uh, so and I was really into sharing everything, <laughs> passing everything on, and and uh, one morning at the uh, I think it was at the uh, when we we all had the used to have the meal together in the sala. And uh, Lumpur Sumedho had got these particularly kind of sugary donuts of some sort. And he put uh, a, a, a couple of them into his bowl lid and then, and then passed them to, um, uh, to, to me. And I immediately passed it on to the, to the next monk you know, beside me. And he said, no, Venerable, I want you to have one. And I kind of looked at him like, what? But I'm the ascetic. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, you know, I, I don't, I don't have nice stuff, you know. I always go without all the nice stuff, and he kind of gave me this look, like, I, I want you to have it. You know, I gave it to you because I like you to have it. Uh, right, <laughs> this is a teaching, so that we, uh, along with with sharing and being generous, that again, it's important to include ourselves, so that you can be compulsively sharing or compulsively. <laughs> Uh, compulsively generous 
And to remember that you're, you're one of the beings that uh, is worthy of sharing all the good stuff with. If you can follow the, the reasoning there. And so that um, I did appreciate Venerable Ginawaro's generosity, but also I, uh, the other part of it was appreciating Lumpur Sumato's like, no, it's for you, Venerable. I want, I want you to have something nice. Oh, <laughs> okay. Can I allow myself to have something nice? Oh, and then realizing that was that that was a a difficulty that I got so used to sort of going without and being the one who gives up and and uh, is uh, yeah, the uh, the the one who's never has anything, uh, never keeps anything for himself. No, I need to I need to let go of that too. And the fifth of the Saraniya Dhammas, these um, beautiful qualities, is that of sila, that uh, sharing a, a standard of discipline, uh, a mode of conduct that uh, you share with everyone else, that you're, you're respecting the, uh, the precepts, you're keeping to the same standard. This is a conducive to, the, to harmony and to um, the ease of living together. Everyone is... Singing from the you know, chanting from the same chanting book. You know, we're all uh, we're all following the same routine. We're all following the same system of precepts. If if uh, if it was up to the individual nuns and monks which rules they chose to follow, Amravati would be a very different place. <laughs> it probably wouldn't last more than a, six months, probably. Say, okay, from now on, all the nuns and monks, we can just choose, you know, like three or four of, the, of our favorite precepts. And you can just, you know, whichever ones you like, you can keep, and the ones you don't like, you can just leave aside. Can you imagine the chaos? Probably most of your minds are going blank. Because <laughs> it, be, it would be ridiculous. It would be, uh, uh, you know, anyone, of, any of you who've ever tried to live in a spiritual community that has a sort of, um, Follow your own, follow your own heart kind of standard. I, I lived in a few communes and squats in in the in the seventies, and uh, they don't hold together very well. <laughs> when anyone can do what they do what they feel like doing, then it uh, it doesn't stay together. It doesn't hold together. So that the uh, maintaining a standard, uh, a shared standard, and respecting that is a powerful force for cohesion and mutual support. And then the last of the Saranya Dhammas, the sixth one, is, as it says, uh, maintaining in being the, the insight that is noble and liberating. And uh, there's a lot that could be said about that, but essentially it's, it's uh, uh, cultivating the, the perception of uh, anicca, the insight into the transient, uncertain, empty nature of, of all perceptions, thoughts, and feelings. If everyone reflects upon anicca, if everyone reflects and recollects that all that arises passes away and is not self, that is a tremendously unifying principle. Because if we remember that all that arises and passes away, when you love something, or you hate something, you're attracted to something, or you're, you're repelled by something, you have an opinion about something, or you're, you're ardent about a particular issue, or you're really worried about something. If you recollect, oh, well, this is this is this is in a state of uncertainty. This is changing. This is empty. Oh, right. 
it puts every love and hate, every gain and loss, every project, every uh, anxiety, it puts it into perspective. And the heart can't get so dazzled or confused or carried away by that. So that, again, this is a powerful unifying force to maintain in being that insight that is noble and liberating. All that arises passes away. So as the springtime uh, develops, the uh, and the uh, spring, the sap rises, <laughs> and the uh, activities increase. So we, where are we now? It's uh, uh, Monday, uh, the twenty seventh, and uh, we close the retreat time formally on the thirty first, Friday. So a few more days. Uh, so as these days of uh, activity uh, uh, lie before us and uh, increasing uh, engagement and uh, contact, people taking responsibility, people traveling uh, off to different places, then uh, I heartily encourage this uh, active engagement of the mind with with uh, what is wholesome? That we we're every day, every moment, we're confronted by the possibility of different choices. What we choose to put our mind on, what we choose to pay attention to, it's up to us. And uh, if we choose the the wholesome, if we choose that which conduces to clarity, to brightness, to peacefulness, to freedom from agitation, conduces towards gratitude towards the saraniya, the, the wholesome, the noble, the beautiful, that those are choices that we can make and they have an effect. And that when, when we choose the wholesome, when we choose that which is noble, liberating, then it, it creates the, the ground where the mind can awaken to its own nature. It can uh, awaken to the Dhamma. You can see that the, this mind is Dhamma itself. The chitta is, is, your chitta, your mind, <laughs> is the Dhamma itself. It's not somewhere else. It's not off in some different realm. That's the, the nature of mind. Your mind is, is the Dhamma itself. And when we cultivate the wholesome, the, the noble, the skillful, it, it creates the conditions where that realization can be uh, embodied, can uh, <coughs> Can truly be uh, be known, but, uh, and whether there's a lot of activity or very little activity, whether it's a, a peaceful, quiet spring afternoon or it's in the the middle of the traffic of the M25, that that reality is still there. And if we cultivate the skillful uh, qualities of mind, skillful qualities of attitude, then the heart can awaken to its own nature uh, in, in, all, in all times, in all places, all situations. It, uh, there's no thing, there's no perception that is intrinsically an obstruction to that. And so that uh, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a possibility that, that we all have. And so I, I uh, heartily encourage all of us to, to make good use of that opportunity. Anyone?